welcome to the Yoga Focus Podcast. My name is Laura Gellner, and I am a yoga therapist and occupational therapist based in New Jersey. I created the Yoga Focus Podcast as a way to talk about the tools and techniques of yoga and to see how we can use those techniques to create a greater sense of focus and clarity within our life. So we're going to start this segment by talking about why is it important for yoga teachers to study anatomy. And this has been a topic that's getting a lot of press lately because right now Yoga Alliance just upgraded their requirements for the 200-hour teacher training that we used to do 20 hours of required anatomy, physiology, all of the body science in 200-hour curriculum, and then they restructured some of the ways that they distributed the uh, hours, and now it's 30. So still getting some criticism from people out there saying that 30 is not enough time, and I partially agree with that because I think most people who go into yoga as a profession or even just being a yoga teacher on the side are teaching a lot of movement and 30 hours is just enough to kind of scratch the surface. So the first take home message from this talk is just understanding that the 200 hour training of yoga has a very small piece of anatomy in it, just enough to give you foundation understanding of what's happening. And it is your responsibility to go out and continue to build upon that. So with that being said, let's talk about some of the reasons why we are increasing the requirements for yoga teachers to understand anatomy and physiology. Now, I also want to clarify the term anatomy here doesn't just mean anatomy. We say anatomy because it's just easier to say anatomy instead of physiology, kinesiology, biomechanics, all of the different body sciences that come together and contribute to the curriculum of what we teach in the 200-hour teacher training. It's really a combination of a lot of different types of studies on the body. Psychology gets pulled in a lot. Different types of um, theories from psychology are used when we talk about the nervous system and understanding trauma and things like that. So we say anatomy as just a quick way to help us understand what module we're working on, but just understand that it is all of the body sciences. So the first part of this is that you are going to be working with physical bodies. You're going to have people in front of you that you are in charge of instructing. And if you're going to teach any sort of asana or movement, you are therefore a movement professional. I know sometimes there's like this weird thing in yoga where we're not teaching movement. We don't want to be like lumped into the same category as personal trainers or physical therapists or something like that. But the bottom line is that if you are working with people and telling them how to move and how to do things with their body, you are a move professional and you need to have a basic understanding of the body in order to be a respectable movement professional. 
if you want a seat at the table, then you need to do the work to earn that seat. So understand that you are going to be working with bodies and you need to understand that. Big part of that process of getting a seat at the table of other movement professionals is learning the language. So you need to make sure you speak the language and that's the first module that we'll be going into after this. You have to understand the common terminology that every movement professional uses to talk about the body. It also helps us to get very specific in terms of what movement we're trying to focus in on and talk about so that it is less confusing. This is not the language that you're going to use when you're teaching. This is not layman's terms. It is the terminology that you're going to need to use in order to further your education in movement and in understanding the human body because this is the terminology that you will see when you read journal articles or other kinds of professional publications or speak with somebody about the body or attend a conference. If you don't have this knowledge or this language, you're not going to be able to absorb the knowledge that's coming at you. So you have to learn the language to be able to be involved in the conversation about the body. Okay, then the next part of this is we learn about the body to have a basic understanding from which we can have some critical thinking. Understanding some of the basics of how the joints work and how the muscles work and what processes are going on in the nervous system will help us to better adapt things to the students that are in front of us. We don't, know, we don't have to know everything about the body or exactly what to do in every single situation as long as we are working on that process of being good critical thinkers and being able to problem solve. This comes in a lot when you're working with students who maybe have an injury or a health condition that requires some sort of adaptation and it becomes this very important relationship between the teacher and the student that we suggest let's try it this way how about if you do the pose using this prop does that make a difference do you have less pain when you're doing it that way and it becomes this back and forth with the student where we are facilitating problem solving and we're facilitating that problem solving from a place of critical thinking and that critical thinking is functioning on a base of knowledge about the body. So that's really why it's so important to study the body and all of these body sciences before you go out into the world and start trying to teach people. The third piece of this is that we need to understand individual variation from person to person. And I know for me, in my years of working with the body, it took me a long time to really understand this because when I went to school, this was not highlighted, but everybody's bone structure is different. If you go on Paul Greeley's website, he has beautiful pictures of the bones of the leg. It's a femur and it shows the angle of the femur and there's I think three or four of them lined up and each one has a very different angle to it and if you think about that that in terms of how is that going to impact that person's movement 
all of them are going to have different range of motion in their hips. All of them are going to look different when they go into a deep squat. So when I studied anatomy and when most people study anatomy, you're looking at this skeleton and it's kind of a, it's a perfect skeleton. And you're looking at pictures in books and all of the pictures are this ideal representation of the body. And to me, in my mind, when I went out into the world to teach yoga or to be a therapist, I thought everybody's body inside looks like that. And it's just not the case. So with the application in yoga, it always used to come from a place of everybody needs to try to fit their body into this ideal alignment. But what's evolved more recently is that as we understand individual variation, just from a structural perspective in terms of the bony anatomy, we know that those two people are going to have poses that look different and poses that feel different in their body because of that individual variation. So one of the things that we really learn from studying anatomy is that there is no one-size-fits-all protocol that's going to work on the yoga mat. Whether you are instructing people of various ages or body types, there's always going to be that need to make the pose or make the sequence work for all of those different people. So keep that in mind. We are quite unique. So the next piece of this is understanding that many yoga poses require a range of motion that is greater than what we consider to be the normal range of motion desired at a joint. When we go and we talk about the joints, we're going to see how each joint in the body has a measurable number of degrees that would create what we would consider a normal range of motion or a restricted range of motion. Say they had an injury. If I can only lift my shoulder to 90 degrees versus a full 180 degrees, which I don't have, but if I could, um, 180 degrees would be full range of motion. Even 175 would really be a full functional range of motion at the shoulder. Many of the yoga poses that we do, and I'll keep using the shoulder as the example, would require me to go past 180 degrees. So past having my arm lined up with my body. And you'll see that a lot in downward facing dog where they really sink into the pose. I'll show you some pictures of those examples later on in some of the more detailed slideshows. But keep in mind that yoga was created mainly working with young bodies that were very physically active that had more of what we can more than what we consider to be normal range of motion for the population today so when you take somebody out of modern society and put them onto a yoga mat and start having them do triangle pose downward facing dog deep forward folds the range of motion for those poses or at least the the really end range expression of those poses just is not accessible for a lot of people. So don't get stuck in this belief that we just have to like hammer at the practice over and over and over to force the joints to do that. There's just no reason for that. We don't 
need that much movement to do anything except for these arbitrary yoga poses. It is not going to contribute to your enlightenment if you have excess range of motion at your joints. That's just not the point of yoga. And I think one of the pitfalls of social media and yoga being a very visually appealing thing in terms of asana practice has really steered us in that direction that it's all about the asana and it's all about the flexibility, but that's just not the case. And we as teachers do not want to guide our students into harming themselves because they're trying to replicate these poses that may not be attainable for their body. Again, jump back to the last point of talking about individual variation. Because of the shape of our hip joint, some people will never be able to do a lotus pose, but if they keep crank joint over and over and over, may do damage to their knee. So is it worth trying to force your body into those shapes that may not be realistic for you just to be able to attain this specific yoga pose? I think there are so many other choices within always find a way to get the benefit that we're looking for without forcing the body to do something unnatural. That's really the direction that we're trying to move in for the modern evolution of making yoga practice smarter and safer. The next one is that yoga asana is very specialized movement. And this really ties in strongly with my last point. A lot of the yoga asanas require a ton of range of motion that's just not really functional in terms of daily life. So if we think about movements that are functional, being able to get up off the floor, being able to sit on the floor is a very practical thing to be able to do. Many people in modern society from sitting in chairs and sitting in cars lose the ability to sit on the floor. And you'll see this a lot where people walk into yoga class for the first time and they go to sit on the floor maybe for the first time in like 30 years and they're like their knees are up by their ears and they can't, their hips just don't have the range of motion to comfortably sit on the floor. That's something that can be worked on with props, of course, to lift up the hips to make sitting on the floor more comfortable or maybe starting in a chair is going to them to kind of jump into yoga. There's so many different options to deal with that specific situation, but just understand that there are components of yoga that have functional application to the movements that we utilize in daily life, and those are really the things that we want to focus on that's going to make us more comfortable off of our mat instead of just chasing shapes when we are on our mat. All right, number six, perhaps my favorite one. Asana practice is not perfect, and that's okay. Nothing is perfect. So why do we think that yoga would be perfect? This is something that took myself and I know many other experienced yogis years of pain and injuries to figure out. So I came into yoga at a point in time before kind of the modern evolution of yoga had really started. So we're going back about 15, 16 years, uh, probably 16 or 17 years at this point. And during that time, the overwhelming attitude that I was getting from the yoga community was that yoga is all you need. 
yoga postures are the only thing that you need to take care of your physical body. And now, after several injuries and coming back from those injuries and trying to figure out how to build more resilience in the body, I've definitely come to understand that yoga asana is not the perfect practice for your body. It just has certain things that are missing from it. It doesn't have resistance training. There is a very strong lack of being able to pull and strengthen the posterior chain effectively. There are definitely things that need to be supplemented through other forms of movement. So please don't go out and tell people, I only do yoga, that's the only thing that I need to take care of my body. Um, because doing that specific thing leads a lot of people into injury. Now what we're really trying to promote is that yoga is wonderful if it's done in a way that's really balanced by the other things within our life. So also doing cardiovascular exercise, also doing weight training. When we pull in all different movement modalities and put them together, that is what really builds resilience in our body. So don't try to steer your students away from other things. If they are a runner or a swimmer or a weightlifter, don't try to sway them away from those things. I actually encourage my students to do more cross-training type of things. And I know for myself, after all these years of practice, my time on the mat feels the best and it is the best experience when I also spend time in the gym and I also spend time doing weight training. It just feels better to move on my mat. My shoulders are happier. My back is happier. All of those things just work better together. So variety is good. Number seven is understand that we don't know everything about the body. We actually know, I think, very little about the body and how it works. So when we talk about anatomy and physiology and the body sciences, a lot of this stuff is evolving constantly. That's where that component of continuing education comes in, that if you just do your teacher training or you just go through some sort of a school program and then you stop there and don't keep looking for new sources of information and updated sources of information, your knowledge will become outdated because new stuff is coming out all the time. The other part of this that was hard for me is that because this knowledge is evolving, you might have to unlearn or relearn new information as those things change and as we understand the body better. I think a really big example of that was fascia. When I did my teacher training, we did not even talk about fascia. It wasn't really on the radar. You didn't hear a lot about it. I, did, I barely even talked about it when I was in therapy school. Now, we talk about it in 200-hour teacher training. It's all over the place in the yoga world. You're constantly hearing about fascia and its connection to what we do on our yoga mats. So constantly evolving. Keep an open mind and be ready to unlearn and relearn things as needed. Number eight, it is not all about stretching. This is so important for yoga teachers to understand. We do a lot of big movements that are creating space in the body. And people often equate that to, oh, yoga is about stretching. You're just, you're trying to be more flexible. 
that's a component of it where we're trying to create freedom of movement in the body for sure. Nobody wants to feel stiff and sore. That just is not a nice way to exist in your body. So yes, part of what we do on the yoga mat is reaching and creating space and looking for that freedom of movement. But I think the first thing that every yoga teacher goes to is if something is uncomfortable or feels tight, it's always stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. And I'll use the wrist as an example because I see this all the time. Somebody has discomfort in their wrists, maybe from doing a repetitive vinyasa program. Okay, repetitive strain in from an overuse pattern of movement. What does the yoga teacher tell the student to do? Stretch your wrist this way, stretch your wrist that way, do all these different pulling and creating more space. When the reality of the situation might be that they've already done a ton of stretching with um, weight bearing at a really strong angle of extension in the wrist. So what they really need is strengthening or stabilization or some other form of movement input other than stretching. I see the same kind of thing with the neck. People come to yoga teachers and say, oh, my neck is always tight. Oh, okay, we're going to do this stretch and then we're going to do that stretch and all these different stretches and we're going to... But what the neck probably needs is strength and stability. And that's a little bit trickier for you to work into your yoga practice, something that takes a little bit more training and experience. But just know that it's not always about stretching. That is not the answer to everything in the body. Strengthening, stability, range of motion, control, body awareness. These are all different pieces of the puzzle, and we need all of them. So... Keep that in mind. That will be explained in more detail when we go into the specific modules about movement, the difference between active and passive range of motion, active assisted range of motion. All of those create uh, a variety of tools that we can use to address specific needs in the body. Okay, number nine, another really good one. So rolling right into number nine is understand your scope of practice as a yoga teacher. And really when People come up to you, and this will happen all the time. It happens to me all the time. Um, people will come up to you and say, like, this hurts right here. Why does it hurt, and what should I do about it? And you, as a yoga teacher, are not qualified to give that person advice in terms of managing pain or correcting pain or diagnosing anything. You're not a doctor. You're not a therapist. You don't have the qualifications to really guide that person effectively. What you do need to do is refer out whenever something is outside the scope of your practice. Refer to a doctor. Refer that person to a chiropractor, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or a yoga therapist. If they want guidance specifically within the practice of yoga, a yoga therapist is going to be the person that would handle that. The reason for this is that scope of practice is a, um, a really important term that we've been talking about a lot. When you are a 200-hour certified yoga teacher and you only have those either 20 to th or 30 hours, depending on when you did your training, of anatomy, you are basically qualified to guide the person in front of you who has a 
relatively healthy, intact body through the eight limbs of yoga. You've been trained in some basic understanding of the um, yamas, the niyamas, and how that applies to yoga practice. You know the basic postures, a little bit of how to modify them. Um, you know some meditation techniques and some breathing techniques. That is what you are qualified to teach people. You are not qualified to diagnose or to try to fix injuries or conditions. That requires medical license. So refer out. A lot of times people will come to me and say, I don't want to go to the doctor. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I mean, I can't force you to go to the doctor, but I'm not going to tell you what to do with your injury. That's just something that you have to see a doctor for because that's what they're qualified to do. That is their scope of practice, not mine. All right. Number 10, yoga is not a panacea. It is not this endless healing spring, although it can be very healing, and I've found it to be very healing in my life, but understand that yoga is not perfect, like I said earlier, and it can do harm. Every single yoga posture, every single yoga practice has an application where it can help someone to heal, but it also has a certain application in another scenario where it might cause damage. More recently in the yoga community, people have been speaking out freely about the fact that they have had injuries because of their yoga practice, because of asana practice. And years ago when I started teaching, that was like yoga blasphemy. You did not say that. N yoga did not cause your injury. It was something else or it was your fault or you did something wrong or you weren't practicing enough. That was almost always the answer that you would get if you said that, like for me, I was having a lot of lower back pain uh, my first few years of practice and I could never really figure out like, why does my lower back always hurt after I do yoga practice? Like 12 to 24 hours after the practice, my lower back was so tight and sore. And the overwhelming answer that I would get was, you need to practice more. You're not practicing frequently enough. Just get on your mat more. Um, and because I was in school and things like that, that was not always feasible because I had so many other obligations at the time. And therefore, I felt constant guilt of, oh my gosh, I'm not doing my practice enough. I'm not a good yogi right now. The bottom line was that I needed to change some of the things about the practice that were not working well for my body, especially being that I was a student at that time and I was spending tons of time sitting and studying and writing papers. So my practice really needed to change to be a better counterbalance to what I was doing off my mat. And a few years later, when I was kind of stuck in that whole realm of I only do yoga. That is my only physical practice. I had given up weightlifting and wasn't playing sports anymore. That was when I ended up with a shoulder injury. And I can't say that that was 100% due to my yoga practice, but it was definitely something that was very aggravated by downward dog or arm balances or really anything where I was repetitively lifting arm up overhead was causing very severe shoulder pain. 
And it was hard for me to come to terms with the fact that my practice was doing harm to my body because I had been told that that just wasn't possible. It is, I promise. Um, Now we see more of these teachers coming out saying that they overdid their practice and they needed a hip replacement or they've torn their meniscus or an ACL or all these different things that we're now seeing that when we are too aggressive or we don't approach our practice from a place of balance, it can indeed cause harm. So again, that's why studying the body and understanding why we need variety of movement, what sort of range of motion is acceptable to our body, what our individual variation is, all of that stuff plays into the way that we make the practice work for us as individuals and the way that we prevent the practice from harming us. Because It can be so, so healing. We just have to know how to apply it. That is the incredible skill of being a yoga teacher, especially when we get to like a small group setting or a one-on-one private session. Your skillfully take the knowledge of yoga and apply it to the person in front of you is just an amazing process and can facilitate incredible growth and wellness with that person that you're working with. So just understand that yoga has immense potential for what it can add to people's lives. We just have to really take the time to make sure that we are skilled teachers, that we understand as much as possible so that we can correctly apply the tools of yoga to the individual in front of us. The last part of this bonus piece is we use this study of the body to foster this sense of wonder. And (laughs) I am in constant awe of the body. It is just incredibly complex, more complex than I can even understand or process. When we talk about some of the different body systems, I like to throw in facts about the system is and how many neurons we have in our brain and all of these things where it's just mind-boggling what we have right here that we are working with. Incredible complexity. So try to hold on to that sense of wonder and awe, especially when a little bit of frustration starts to set in, which sometimes can happen when we're studying anatomy in the body. But It is just, it's amazing. So this is one of, I think it's um, John Kabat-Zinn in his Principles of Mindfulness is holding on to a sense of wonder at life and the things that we see in front of us. And I think the human body is this very tangible experience of wonder and awe that we get to exist in this package. So that covers all of the main topics of why I think it is so important for yoga teachers to dedicate time, effort, and energy to having a very strong foundation of knowledge in anatomy and physiology and kinesiology. It has such direct application to the practice, and it makes you so much more skillful at being able to Use the tools of yoga appropriately with the people that present themselves in front of you to your students. So I hope that has you excited for 
the rest of the modules in this sequence. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode of the Yoga Focus podcast. If you'd like to leave me a comment or a question, you can go over to my YouTube channel at Laura G Yoga and leave a comment under the video format of the podcast or you can go onto my Instagram, which is also at Laura G Yoga, and leave me a question or send me a direct message on there. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the podcast. I just wanted to talk to you guys about the book that I released in June of 2019, which is called Yoga Therapy at the Wall. I have worked on this book for the past three years to create all of the pictures and all of the information in here. It's 162 pages and it's a full color manual. The chapters are broken down by body parts that we focus on using the wall to help us learn about different movement patterns and how to change some of the yoga postures to have a specific therapeutic focus. And you can really start to understand when you look at the book why I feel like the wall is the most underutilized prop that we have in yoga. We kind of forget about these things that we have all around us and that we almost always have access to a wall to utilize in the practice. So this manual will give you a ton of ideas to expand and start to utilize the wall as a prop. If you're interested in ordering, you can get the printed version on lulu.com. Um, you can either take the link in the show notes or you can go on Lulu and look up yoga therapy at the wall. There's also a digital download option, but for that you have to go on Etsy. And my Etsy store is Healthy Focus by Laura G. Or you can just search yoga therapy at the wall. Thanks. Hope you enjoy it.